Today's episode is a compilation of our Healthcare Innovator Series episodes to date. We will hear from Banner Health's Alzheimer's Research for Early Detection and two minimally invasive spine surgery techniques with Drs. Young and Dr. Abbasi. Then Dr. Korn Weiss shares how he is helping patients prevent chronic illness and level up their health with peak performance. And here at Providers, Properties, and Performance, we often talk about the importance of having the latest market data when making investment decisions. Each quarter, Doc Properties publishes a market report and gives you exactly what you need to identify opportunities for the greatest return on investment. Our Q2 report breaks down hot submarkets, sales activity, asking rents, cap rates, and more. We'll go through it in depth in an upcoming episode, but you can download your free copy at docproperties.com forward slash AZ dash medical dash office dash market forward slash. And that web address will also be in the show notes. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Episode 70. Healthcare Innovators, Alzheimer's Research for Early Detection and Prevention. One of the things that we, that our team uh, developed, I think it was in like, I might be wrong on this, but I think it's like, it was maybe 2009, 2010. We had a group that came together to form the Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative. And one of the major projects that they entered into with a large pharmaceutical company was a project in Medellin, Colombia in South America. There's a group of a population, you know, that is down there. They're all genetically linked. It's a small mountainous region. And a neurologist there years ago started seeing this connection between these family members who would have Alzheimer's symptoms starting at like age 45, very early and started seeing this unique genetic link. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. The next two weeks, we are going to feature a healthcare innovator. And a consistent message of this podcast is how healthcare real estate is a demand-driven and mission-critical component of delivering healthcare services. Today's episode features a guest that is a perfect example. Our healthcare innovator for the next two episodes features Banner Health's Alzheimer's Institute Imaging Program, a center of excellence at Banner Health University Medical Center, supporting the research goals of the Institute. Banner Health has two memory care facilities, one in Phoenix, one in Tucson, and a research facility in Sun City. My guests today are Connie Boker, Director of Operations, and Jennifer Craig Mueller, Director of the All of Us Research Program. Thank you and welcome. Connie and Jennifer, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you, Trish. Yeah, thank you. So do you both work out of the downtown Phoenix location adjacent to Banner Health University Medical Center? We do. Okay. We do. And um, well, that and at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hybrid. Um, for the audience, the Banner Alzheimer's Institute is a special institute at Banner Health, and it was founded in 2006. So why don't you guys provide the history of the 
BAI and why Banner created it and its mission. Okay. Jennifer, you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So um, Dr. Eric Raymond is a psychiatrist. He's an MD psychiatrist, but really had, after he you know got out of school at Duke and did his fellowship and at WashU and worked with, you know, some of the people there, he really, really developed a strong interest in the brain imaging side of Alzheimer's disease. He always kind of had an interest in long, strong interest in the brain imaging side of that. And so when he came to Good Samaritan Medical Center in the early nineties, he was actually the first person to bring a PET scanner to the state of Arizona. So PET is positron emission tomography. And unlike, you know, an MRI or CT, it actually images the metabolic activity of the brain. In this case, it, we, there's, it's used for other obvious other medical reasons, but his interest was with the brain imaging. So we had that. And then in order to do a PET scan, you have to have um, a PET radio tracer. This is actually a compound that has a very, very short half-life. And so you have to make it within, you know, hours of where you're going to use it because the half-life's only like 120 minutes. So we developed the first radiochemistry facility within the state of Arizona as well, where we could actually manufacture that initially it was a fluorodeoxyglucose pet tracer that he would use with his, his pet scans. And then we had several other tracers that were developed at the time that were very interesting. So that was kind of how the brain imaging research side of things got started. He did that at Good Samaritan Medical Center, which of course is what now is Banner University Medical Center Phoenix, um, for probably mm, about, well, more than 10 years. And that's where I first met him in, when I was directing operations there. But in 2006, his biomarker research that he was doing, you know, he, he had an interest in uh, formalizing the institution of Banner Alzheimer's Institute and expanding the research to include clinical trials. And that's when Dr. Pierre Terrio joined in 2006 with the formation of Banner Alzheimer's Institute, was, which is one of the first centers of excellence that, that Banner actually created. And since that time, it's just, it's just grown exponentially. And I, I can't remember, but, and Jennifer, you may know what this is, but I know when our public relations people talk, it's like, there's a huge percentage. It's like, I think it's over 70% of media that mentions Banner that is related to Banner Alzheimer's Institute. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, you guys are doing amazing things and, and uh, the, hopefully you'll share all of that with the audience here. Um, so, uh, Jennifer, why don't you go first and then Connie to give Connie a little break here, but when did you join the BAI? Yeah, so I've worked at Banner Health in different capacities. So I joined first in 2018 and then a year later switched over to BAI. So I've been here about two years now. And Connie? Well, let's see which time I've been at Banner probably, oh, five, four or five different times. But the last time I started was in uh, 2009 with Banner Alzheimer's Institute. So have been in a number of different roles doing like research administration. At one point, I was a uh, director of research finance, which, you know, I'm not a CFO. So that wasn't really any kind of long-term goal of mine to become one. 
And my role in the last seven years has been as the director of operations for our brain imaging research program, which includes the PET scanning department, the MRI scanning department, our radiochemistry facility that manufactures these radio tracers, and then a group of very, very bright people who do all of the imaging analysis of the things that we acquire on our scanners. And they inform our investigators about all the interesting things that they find in the brain. They do quantitative analyses of changes in the brain that it's just amazing to me. I I don't even know how their brains work that way. (laughs) I just call it magic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the BAI offers treatment and non-treatment studies as well as support and education. And can you please provide an overview of some of the research studies and success stories? Um, What are some of the interesting general results from treatment studies? Uh, Is there promising results for medication to help treat Alzheimer's or prevent its progression? And we should note that the research projects enroll not just those with memory or neurodegenerative disease issues, but also include healthy volunteers in both the memory disorders clinic and the treatment research studies, which include the pharmaceutical clinical studies. Yeah, so I think first I can give you an overview of the non-treatment trials. Um, So these are typically what we call observational studies. So it's really important to make sure we understand what healthy aging looks like. So that way someone who is progressing has cognitive issues or is progressing through their Alzheimer's disease, um, we can actually compare that to what a normal individual would look like who doesn't have any any disease or cognitive issues. Um, So about 25 years now, Dr. Ryman, who's the CEO of Banner Research, um, started a, a cohort study in which he brings in healthy participants every other year. So we do cognitive assessments to kind of just figure out, you know, how is their thinking and memory working? Um, And then as Connie mentioned, we do brain imaging. So the PET scans, the MRIs, as well as collect biospecimens. So blood and then spinal fluid um, through a lumbar puncture. So really this study has had some pretty amazing results. It really kind of has set the foundation, like I said, to say what, um, see what healthy aging looks like. And then really, if you imagine studying someone over 25 years, you start to identify changes that occur and when. Um, So Dr. Ryman was able to actually identify different biomarkers is what we call them. So these are really kind of proteins or or different structures in the brain that are signs of the neurodegeneration that might be related to cognitive impair. So Dr. Ryman has really kind of set the standard for identifying these changes really before clinical symptoms um, are available. Um, So that's really the benefit of observational studies. So last year, he actually had a very large publication that might lead to a blood test for Alzheimer's disease. Episode 96, Healthcare Innovators spine surgery trailblazer and real estate entrepreneur. The first in spine, but probably the second in the country to have a solely owned ambulatory surgery center that had no partners. I did all by myself. And what prompted you to begin an ASC? That's because I became good friends with the administrator of St. Luke's Hospital and and the guy who was uh, running the clinical trials. And she was marketing me for about, oh, six, seven years and got me, you know, on TV shows and so forth. Then I, I said, how, how much are you making off of every surgery that I, that I operate on your hospital? She said around $10,000 per case. I said, Hey, I do 40 a month. I, I can borrow and pay it off in less than a year. 
Welcome to today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I am joined by Dr. Anthony Young, retired spine surgeon who developed the Young Endoscopic Spine System, where he has lectured internationally and is currently writing a book regarding the procedure. His private practice, Desert Institute for Spine Care, DISC for short, is now run by his son and other partners. He opened one of the first ambulatory surgery centers in Arizona for spine surgery. I hope you enjoy his interview. Anthony, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on your program. Well, thank you. I'm I'm grateful to have you. Um, So you are a retired spine surgeon. I am. Um, Can you please share your career path and how you came to develop the young endoscopic spine system? Well, it was by chance. I started out in chemical engineering. And I turned down a scholarship because I would tour the College of Mines and I decided, I don't want to do this. And so I gave up my scholarship and I went into liberal arts where I decided I, I like to be a physician because when I came to this country in 1949, I was actually raised by my mother and my father stayed behind in Hong Kong. And we started a gift shop called the China House. We had antique material that was like at Gump's, okay? So I worked from the age of 10 years old in my uncle's grocery store for 10 cents an hour, and I continued working throughout. And I listened to my mother to say, look, Tony, you're Chinese, but you're now American. I'm not even gonna speak Chinese to you because I want you to turn it around in one generation. So that really had an impact on me. So I became very bossy so that my sister didn't even like me (laughs) because I was so bossy. But it all turned out that I focused on what I thought I was good at, and that was in engineering, math, physics. And But all my friends were too boring. They're engineers. And I go, I'm going to do something different. So I decided, okay, I'm Chinese. Invest in property. You can't invent land anymore. And so as a result... You know, I sat there for 40 years, and now the land that I uh, invested in, it had water rights, 100-year water supply, and now I'm selling that right now, so it's right in your area. Yeah, no, that's great. So when did you decide to go to medical school? Uh, I was one of those people that uh, was not discriminated against because I was Asian, and every year there was one Asian person in the medical school so happened that I was the selected one for 1965. And the guy that interviewed me was a missionary in China. And he was fascinated by my background and wanted to know, I said, are you going to ask me any tough questions? He said, I'm on the committee. You're in, forget it. <laughs> so, so I was lucky, but now I find that if you're Asian, you're, you know, you're supposed to be. Uh, so you you finished your re- residency, and how did you decide to go into spine surgery? Um, I started in uh, 1971, and I happened to be liked by my uh, program director. And I was getting ready to go to Vietnam, and I said, I can get deferment if I get accepted in residency program. It was filled. He said, I'll make one for you. So I got in in 1975, just as the Vietnam War ended. So I spent two years in the U.S. Navy with a lieutenant commander uniform, American uniform, 
and I was stationed in the Philippines, traveled all over Asia. And at that time with Asian girls, I was hot stuff. And so I said, hmm, okay, not bad. So anyway, I then used what I liked and developed the young endoscopic spine system in 1998. And I opened my own ambulatory surgery center. But as luck have it, I was liked by the um, administrator of St. Luke's Hospital who marketed my skills. And it got the fellowship trained spine surgeon mad because here I was, I was just a general orthopedic surgeon and the hospital was promoting me. So, oh, you didn't do your fellowship in spine surgery. You did your fellowship in general orthopedic surgery. Yes. Okay. Right. All right. But I decided, okay, I'll just do what I like. So basically, and I teach my grandkids, my son is a spine surgeon. My daughter's a dermatologist and my son wants sports medicine. I said, well, you know, his friends told him, if you do go, don't go into spine and follow the pathway your father led, you're crazy. Then my daughter says, you know, I like dermatology, but it's too hard to get into. I said, don't you dare take anything less. Take, take, do some research and you'll get into a program. And she's a dermatologist. Yeah. I don't think there's enough. They're doing very well. So I'll die happy. And I'm the last of the generation of, of my family. So what was happening in spine surgery that got you thinking about this particular system and got you to develop it? Okay. Most people will follow what the academics tell you. Follow this, follow that, learn how to do it, use this textbook. And I said, what about the people don't fit in the program? I want to treat pain. Right. And by the time I finished, I had done 11,000 cases. Nobody's going to pass me up for the next couple of years. But 11,000 cases, I, I would identify the cause of the pain with the endoscope. So you did 11,000 cases. 11,000 cases. And because I developed the young endoscopic spine system, I was advised, don't use your name because the people don't want to tell where they learned it because they, you know, people will just travel at, in Arizona or wherever. They say, oh, I'm on the West Coast. I can come by. And I basically... Every five years, I reviewed my cases so that after about 10 years, I knew that I can guarantee my results. So when I guarantee my results, I said, look, you pay me more than insurance pays. I'll accept your insurance and I'll guarantee you if you don't get what you want, you don't have to pay. Episode 104, Healthcare Innovators, Creating Better Outcomes with Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery. In 2022, about 80% of the surgeries are still being done open old-fashioned way, but more and more, we come to the conclusion that the surgery that we did uh, 10 years ago, it was seven hours, we do it in one hour and send the patient home in hours, and those patients recover so much faster. So this was always uh, in the back of my mind, your question, this is a long answer to your question, how, how or when did I come with this? It is that it was clear to me from my first day, days in the med school that something can need to be done better. Doing a surgery and losing half of your body blood is not really a good way to perform surgery. Yes, we transfuse, we are prepared for that. But this patient takes them years to recover. Then on and on, as I went, I saw that other discipline 
they already are ahead of us. So I took it upon myself to bring the spine surgery, where general surgery went 40 years ago, uh, joint surgery 20 years ago, and um, OBGYN like 80 years ago. Now it is our time. Today's podcast episode is part of the Healthcare Innovation Series, where I feature a healthcare company or a physician that is making an impact on patient care procedures or outcomes. My guest today is Dr. Hamid Abbasi, Medical Director of Inspired Spine, where he performs minimally invasive spine surgeries, priding himself on being able to help patients that others have been told for years they had to live with their pain. His medical campus includes education, training, and surgery centers. For those that watch the YouTube video, they can share in his diagram of the spine as he explains how the minimally invasive procedure he performs has better outcomes. Hamid, welcome to the uh, Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. My pleasure. So let's start with your background. Uh, I find it interesting that you have a a medical degree in neurosurgery and a PhD in computer computer science. So when I read it, I thought it might be a typo, but uh, why don't you share your path uh, to neurosurgery and then through computer science for us? Um, I do believe the path for most of surgeons is not a straight one. Um, It just requires people who are very dedicated to what they do and uh, they're not afraid of for, for the path to be a very long one. So I'm born in Iran, and uh, I actually did one year of uh, uh, med school in Iran. It was just about six years after the uh, Iranian revolution, and it was crazy time, for lack of other terms. So they, literally, I got in trouble, so I had to go. And uh, I went to Germany, I, uh, 1987, I went to Germany, and then I actually went to a German school and uh, some pre-med. 1989, I started my med school in Germany, and as if that wasn't enough, in 1993, I started a PhD in computer science. Okay. At that time, the computer you and I are talking is a marvel. At that time, the computer we bought was uh, $750,000 for my PhD, where I wrote my programs. And the graphic card um, was $250,000. And uh, the the amazing part is your cell phone probably has uh, 350 times more capacity than that computer. But I wrote the program to use the bone, it's a computer tomographical picture from a CAT scan, put it in the computer and then make a model, 3D model that you can cut at different angle to see how it behaves when you do it for a real person. We call that the finite element model that as well, when they crash the car, they use the same computer technology. So we use that for medicine. In 1996, I finished my med school but my PhD was still ongoing until 1998. So I did, meanwhile, residency in Germany, but that wasn't good enough for me. So I went to Stanford. I did a postdoc and research associate position. I helped them to develop a navigation system for spine because I was very knowledgeable about that. But then I knew there's no way I'm going back. So 
um, I applied. I uh, uh, actually matched to a general surgery program in Dartmouth College, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And after that, I reapplied and matched to a neurosurgery program in Galveston, Texas. And then I had to repeat everything again. So I have one of the longest uh, residency. My residency was three, uh, 13 and a half years. In average, people do half as much uh, residency. But after that, after I finished my residency and I rotated in all major hospitals in Houston, um, my residency program was in Galveston, Texas. And um, we decided to see another part of the uh, United States. So we decided to come to Midwest. <laughs> and, and that's where I am now. In, I'm in Minneapolis and practice across Minneapolis. But as well, we are now actually having uh, satellites in multiple states. Arizona is next. Good. Yeah, I'm saying you just haven't hit the Southwest yet. Oh. So, you know, as you're, you, uh, you know, you perform, you're starting to perform brain and spine surgeries and, and you continue through your career and perfecting your craft. When did you start to focus on minimally invasive spine surgery? You know, um, this is a secret uh, that we doctors don't tell our patient often. Uh, we know for a very long time that if you miss, poke smaller holes, patient Patient have to less patient have less injury to recover from. Common sense, right? Big hole, lots of recovery. Smaller hole, smaller recovery. And in um, about seventy years ago, even more, maybe eighty years ago, the OBGYN doctors in the the, the woman doctors started using tubes, a tube that you know you don't make a big open opening in the body, you just put a tube in and through the tube, you perform what you need to perform. Once the tube, and the reason for that is obviously for women, you have a big opening to a, a uterus and you can put bigger spe speculum or tubes in. About 50 or 60 years ago, the, the urology, the doctor who take care of your uh, bladder and the kidneys and so on, they noticed that with the technology, they could do smaller kind of endoscope. So they start using that. In 1980s, meaning 40 years ago, the general surgeon discovered that, you know, you can make a hole in the belly and then do the surgery through the smaller hole. And then patient recovers so much faster. And then orthopedic surgeon about 20 years ago discovered, wow, the technology is far enough that we can put it in your knee or in your joint and perform a surgery and send you home same day. Now, we all experts agree, if you would be doing surgery like cholecystectomy, appendectomy, and so on, like the way we did 50 years ago, we would break medical system because <laughs> patient had to stay in the hospital for so long, they have so much to recover from. Yet in spine, we are doing surgery still today, in 2022, mostly um, the way we did it 40 and 50 years ago. Episode 107, Healthcare Innovators, Promoting Wellness and Preventing Chronic Illness. Yeah, you're, you're hitting on a really important thing. So the interventions for improving somebody's prospects of their long-term health and longevity and decreasing the likelihood somebody will develop chronic diseases, um, 
there's only a handful of things you can do, right? So you can address those four things you just listed, nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress management, and then you can take supplements and medication. So pharmacology, and then obviously you can do diagnostic testing and procedures if needed. But in terms of the the interventions that I would prescribe to somebody coming into my practice, you basically hit four out of the five things. The last category is pharmacology, which is supplements and medications. But the, the majority of the things that somebody needs to do to improve their current well-being, so how well you feel and perform on a daily basis, but also your likelihood of living a long and healthy life, it's, it's mostly behavioral change uh, and it's really, really hard to do. Today's episode is another interview for our Healthcare Innovator series. My interview today is with Stephen Cornweiss about his new private practice called Performance Prevention and Longevity, where he treats clients looking to learn about and enhance their current health, prevent or avoid something chronic, acute, traumatic, or fatal. Personally, I'm a huge fan of his practice as I feel we will all be living longer, but being able to enjoy living longer is key, and practitioners like Dr. Cornweiss can help. All right, Stephen, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. So, Stephen, you are now in private practice. Um, you are doing individualized health and wellness at Cornweiss Medical, focusing on performance prevention and longevity. So you have to take the audience and I from where you were previously in emergency medicine and then how you got to open up this private practice. Well, I actually still do both. So I, I, I practice emergency medicine still, and I have a, a private practice in addition. Um, but uh, basically what happened was through the course of my medical training, I, I became interested in lots of different fields. And as a medical student, you have an opportunity to rotate through the emergency department as part of your training. And so I, I was enjoying all of the different aspects of my medical training. And then I found emergency medicine and realized that would give me the opportunity to deal with my favorite phase of care in almost every field, which is the acute undifferentiated phase. So one of the most, in addition to the fact, obviously that you can uh, alleviate a great deal of suffering and help people a lot in emergent scenarios, one of the most exciting things intellectually about emergency medicine is that you're dealing with really acute undifferentiated patients. So you don't know what's wrong with them yet. In many cases, you don't necessarily have time to gather information from the chart. It's just very pure clinical medicine at the bedside, trying to make a rapid diagnosis and trying to do your best to understand the patient's physiology to successfully resuscitate them and get them into their next phase of care. And I always found that to be that rapid diagnostics and resuscitation to be, um, that's what stimulated me most in my training. So that's what attracted me to emergency medicine. Um, and I, I still love that. And I still practice emergency medicine, but after a few years of being out of my training and, and practicing emergency medicine, I just, you know, it's, we deal with lots and lots of chronically ill uh, patients, lots of people with chronic disease and debility. Um, and you can kind of depersonalize it and, and push it uh, into the corner of your mind for a period of time. But eventually you start to realize as not that I'm old, I mean, I'm in my mid thirties, but you know, you start to see patients that are your same age or a couple of years older than you, and they're having serious problems. I mean, I occasionally see patients with MIs who are in their you know, heart attacks, who are in their 
Uh, I've seen some in the, as early as their late twenties, but definitely I've seen um, percentage-wise, it's a small number, but in absolute terms, probably a dozen or so patients who are in their mid-30s who are having heart attacks or, or major vascular issues, strokes. Uh, those are outliers, but it happens. And then cancer diagnoses and things like this. And so you're you're sitting there practicing medicine and thinking to yourself, okay, I'm you know I'm 34 now, and so is this patient, and and what should I be doing to try to prevent this from happening? And and um, and I realized that there's a lot, there are a lot of diagnostic tools and there's, I think, I think there's a lot more that medicine, modern medicine has to offer in the way of prevention than many people take advantage of. I think there's a lot more that could be done. So that really interested me. And then I've also been uh, an avid, I'm not a very good athlete, but an avid recreational <laughs> amateur athlete and an, an avid trainer and exerciser. Um, and I spent at a few years ago, I was spending a lot of time training for road cycling, uh, just on a recreational level. And then also spending a lot of time training in the CrossFit gym. And through those activities, I became more and more interested in, um, the way my metabolism functioned and exercise physiology and nutrition. And so all of those things kind of became integrated in my mind. And those, those things inspired me to go ahead and start my private practice so that I could learn more about them and help other people who are interested in the same things. I think if you are an amateur athlete, it doesn't, all it matters is that you do it <laughs> and you enjoy having fun doing it. I don't think anything else should matter. <laughs> well, I just, I just didn't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm some high performing, uh, you know, competitive athlete because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not great, com not great compared to others, but I do the best that I can within my own abilities. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so reading some of, um, you know, the things that, that your papers and everything, it seems like the preventative care even goes one step further from uh, what some people are calling functional medicine, or maybe it's the same thing um, where you treat the cause of the illness or the root cause, um, or, you know, to try to prevent it or prevent it from reoccurring. So how do you differentiate yourself from like, what would you say, if you, what you do, is it the same as functional medicine or something a little bit different? Yeah. So, um, just to be clear on this, I don't have any sort of affiliation with any, um, any professional society of preventive medicine or functional medicine or anything. And I, I haven't, I've read about and talked to some people who have practices that are called functional medicine practices, but I, I don't want to, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts, but I just, want to be clear that I'm not speaking for functional medicine. And if I get it wrong, I apologize. But my understanding of functional medicine is basically, I think it's more geared towards people who are having symptoms of an illness or they're having an illness. And I think the people who are attracted to functional medicine practices are often feeling like they're not getting answers as to what the actual cause of their problem is from a traditional medical practice or whoever their doctor is. And so they're looking for what's the real problem. Maybe it's an environmental exposure, or maybe they think it's related to gut microbiome or nutrition, things that in a traditional primary care practice, the physician or the practice may not be trained or set up to have the time and the resources to dedicate to a really in-depth investigation of a person's symptoms or problems.
I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.